Good morning. It's great to see all of you. I hope you're making plans to have a great holiday week and um, celebrate our nation in such a powerful uh, and, and such a powerful blessing it is for us to celebrate. Um, sorry about that, Justin. Um, I also want to bring something to your attention. We we're not able to. Uh, you know, participate in every program or every emphasis that every worthy uh, organization has every Sunday. We'd always be doing something different if, uh, and, and special if we were. But um, this week has been designated an event called, this weekend, this Sunday, this day in particular, uh, uh, Call to Fall. From Tony Perkins, it's a call for churches to turn to repentance and ask God to heal and help our nation. And I simply want to ask you, you can go online and look it up, call to fall, C-A-L-L, the number two, F-A-L-L, it means to fall on our knees, um, humbling ourselves, ask God to pray for our nation. And I hope that everyone will find time today, if you're not able to do it today, uh, I think 4th of July week's a good time for us to remember to pray for our nation, and I encourage you to do that. Now, Father, as we get into the Word today, we're asking in Jesus' name for the move of the Holy Spirit. Lord, you have been taking us down paths that um, are dangerous paths. Dangerous in the sense that if we, if we let our flesh respond instead of our spirit, it can cause anger, it can cause resentment. It can cause us to go in a direction you didn't intend with an attitude you don't approve of. So we're asking you as we walk these dangerous paths that you would help us to understand what you are doing in the life of your people. For, for uh, over two years we've been praying, Lord, let, let lies and liars be exposed. We've been praying for the truth to rise up. We've been praying for Americans to know what to do about this information. And then, Lord, help the church wake up to be what we ought to be. Father, I think the jury is still out on what the church is doing as a whole. But we want to wake up. We want to know that we are a part of what you are accomplishing. Like we talked about last week, I think it was, we want to have our Ananias moment. Our moment in glory, not for our sake, but for your glory, we want to be a part of what you are doing to change the world, and we don't want to miss it because it's uncomfortable. We don't want to miss it because it requires us changing some heartfelt ideas. Lord, be it unto your servants according to the word of the Lord. When Mary was overwhelmed with a, with a miracle that she could not conceive of, uh, her response was, well, Lord, just let everything you happen said uh, and said come to pass. Be it unto me according to your word, because you made a promise, no word of God is without power. We thank you for what you're doing and help us to be a part, help us to be ready for our Ananias moment. Lord, we believe that you are setting yourself for a glorious outpouring upon the children of this land. We talked about this a while back. You're going to put a hedge around the children. At the same time, um, we will see abuse and these other things seemingly multiply and go out of control. You want us to understand that you are about to pour out upon children a wall of protection angels of grace and mercy, and you are going to raise up a testimony to the goodness of God from our little ones. And we want to say yes and amen to the will of God as we talk about little ones today. We ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, as I said, I want to talk about little ones. I want to talk about your little ones. I want to talk about my little ones. I want to talk about the little ones uh, scattered across this nation and around the world. Um, I want to talk to you about how important little ones are. We are in a climate that um, 
either directly or indirectly marginalizes the life of our little ones. We have had a prosperity and a, and a, um, a, a, a mindset over the last 70 years or so in America, maybe a little bit longer, that children are a bit of an inconvenience. We, even in the church, we make fun of people with a lot of children. We, we look at their children and we say, you know, with a chuckle on our lips, but I wonder if the real disdain's not in our heart, don't y'all know what's causing all of these kids? Or we will say they're irresponsible for bringing so many lives into the world. And we have, though we would never buy into things like abortion or child abuse or abandoning our children, we have slowly but surely been desensitized into thinking that children are a burden and children are a hindrance We've lost the phenomenal quality that belonged to humanity, the idea of unconditional love. And loved ones, I want to tell you, we're seeing it more and more and more, and it's very damaging, and it's very damning. This idea of, well, I've got them raised. If they're not going to live right, then I'll just write them off. We, we have begun to treat our children as though they're an 18-year project. And if they don't line up at the end of the 18 years, they're on their own. I, there's never been a time in my pastoral career where I hear as many people write off adult children and write off their grandchildren. Now you're looking around saying, who would say that? Oh, they, probably in the other service. Uh, and, and probably visiting from some other church. I'm sure that would never happen with our folks. But loved ones, we talk about the men of Issachar back during the days of David. And the men of Issachar were held in high esteem for two things, because they understood the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. And we have a tendency of using that verse for a lot of different things. But I want to tell you that what God is trying to do in the church of Jesus Christ today is to raise up people who really do understand the times. You say, well, I understand the times. I'm a registered Republican. I understand the times. I'm a, I'm a worker for the Democrats. Or I understand the times. I'm this or that or the other. It's not about our political identity or our, or our favorite team or our favorite cause. The question is, do we really understand from God's perspective what is taking place in society? What is taking place in society? And I had, I, I, I know because someone told me this, I know that some people surely feel this way. Pastor, let's, let's just leave society alone and let's just talk about the church. Let's just talk about Jesus. I, I understand it would be far easier. The, the, the easiest life in the world is to, is to be a compromiser who doesn't deal with facts. That's the easiest life in the world. It's easier to pastor a church that's cold and indifferent, backslidden, it's easy. It's easier to, to try to serve the Lord from a backslidden condition because there's no real challenge to the fiber of who you are. But I remember what Paul said to Timothy. He said, keep reminding the people of God about the things they already know. He says, that's what a good pastor does. He's not on a search for new revelation. If God may give him new insight into the scripture, that's wonderful. We all ought to be growing. But he said, your job is to keep reminding them of what they already know. Because men will forget this and they have, it has to be drilled back into their heart. I remember a few years ago when I was in Europe talking to a couple that um, had raise their children in what they called the dark years of the Soviet Union. They raised their children back in the 50s and 60s and the, at the height of the Cold War and the height of religious uh, intolerance. And they said, uh, they said, Pastor, what we had to do, I said, how did you raise children in that culture and have them turn out the way they did? They're beautiful servants of the Lord. 
And uh, she said they would go to school all day and be taught everything wrong. Be taught that there was no God. I talked to a man, this wasn't in Russia, but a man in Cuba. He said they would take our children in school and say, now if you believe that Jesus is real and there's a God, close your eyes and pray for Jesus to give you candy. And of course the children would do that and the teachers would say, where's the candy? If Jesus is God, he must not be a good God because he either couldn't give you the candy or wouldn't give you the candy. Now close your eyes and pray to our glorious leader, Fidel, and ask him for candy. And the children would close their eyes and pray and all of a sudden a shower of candy would come down out of the rafters and, and they, they were being taught all day long, understand that there is no God, it's the state that takes care of you. Well, there was also things far worse than that going on in the Soviet Union. I said, how did you handle it? And they said, we made a commitment to our children and they said it was for years, every night or every afternoon when they came home, we asked, what did you learn in school today? And <coughs> they would answer the question. And they said that night over dinner, we would counteract what they had been taught in school. We would give them stories from the scripture. You know, Daniel had this same kind of problem and here's how God helped him. He said when they got into high school and higher levels of intellectual argument, they said it was not uncommon, Pastor, for us to stay up all night fighting against what they had been taught in school. And we had to go to work in the factories the next day. We needed our sleep desperately as our children needed theirs. But we understood that it's not enough to just know what's going on. We need to know what we ought to do as well. And I'm afraid we're in a society where the state is not doing what the Russian government did or the Cuban government did. And in fact, there are some great servants of God in, in school systems. We're not trying to equate two separate systems in that way. But I do think that we're in danger of being desensitized to the battle over our children. And if we're not careful, at best we may understand the times, but not know what we ought to do. And we end up losing that way. We may be entering some, some, some dark years. Now, uh, I want to, I want to, read a verse of scripture in just a few moments from the story of the Exodus. Um, when we read the book of Joshua, there's an interesting event that went on. Are you all with me? You're staying with me here? Okay. There was an interesting event. God backed up the Jordan River. It was harvest time, and at harvest time, the Jordan River, those of you that have been to Israel, you see it. You can throw a stone across the Jordan River, except at harvest time then it swells to about a mile wide and with a dangerous current. And they had to cross the Jordan to get into the land of promise. And God stopped the water way upstream. He stopped it so that Israel was able to walk across on dry land uh, just like they did in the Red Sea. And when everybody was getting settled, Joshua commanded the leaders of Israel, he said, every one of you get leaders, go to the middle of the river and gather large stones, stones that would normally be unseen, stones that would normally not be a part of your world because they were so far under deep water. Bring the stones to the place where the boundary of the waters had reached. Build up a monument of these stones. And this is what he said, the day will come he said, everybody now understands it, but the day will come when you and your children will be passing by here on a journey, on a mission, maybe to do trade, maybe to go for a religious pilgrimage, and your children will look out in what will be the middle of the river and see this monument of stones. And the children will say, what do these stones mean? And he said, this is your reminder of how important it is to tell them about their history, to tell them about the hand of God being upon them. 
And he said, you would look at your children and say, let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about his relationship with us. These stones. Now, where did all of this begin? Well, we know that stones were monumental in building altars. When altars were built, they were built and they were left because they not only were an act of worship, but they were to be a remembrance of that act of worship. But we are in a culture, if we're not careful, our children will not know what the stones mean. I went to my hometown <coughs> uh, for vacation a, a few days ago, and it, the, the town is just undergoing, um, not renovation, um, what do you do it when you build up an old town? Uh, revitalization, thank you. The, the city was going through revitalization and, and Pensacola was looking better than I had seen it in probably two decades. So many storms had come through and just the ravage of age. And I, as I went from place to place, people, I would see things being rebuilt, reshaped, refocused, revitalized. And it's the person in charge of the building would say, well, let me tell you about this building. And their history would go back a little bit. And I realized that I was in danger of sounding like a really old guy. Um, but it seemed like over and over, every place I went, I said, yeah, it's interesting. I said, I lived here before that. Let me tell you about what was here before that and give you a little more history. And for the most part, they were fascinated and, and I just... But I realized Pensacola was changing. And as I was praying days later, I, I know I'm cutting the story way short to be able to get through it today. But um, the Lord spoke to me and said, uh, I was praying about spiritual dynamics. And I said, and the, I felt like the Lord say, Pensacola has always been a portal for the spiritual realm. And I could take 15 minutes and explain to you why that's been true. Uh, the Brownsville Revival is one of the examples that you'd most likely be familiar with. Brownsville is a little community in Pensacola like, uh, uh, like West Columbia would be to Columbia. And um, I, I prayed about that a little bit and the Lord spoke something to me very, very sincerely. He said, the greatest danger in the coming move of God in America is being modeled in Pensacola. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but this is what the Lord spoke to me. He said, there's coming a great revitalization, but the people leading the revitalization don't understand the roots they're connected to. And, and that, that went with something the Lord had spoken to me months ago. And I said, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm getting a little bit older. I know nobody would believe that if I said it, but I'm getting a little bit older and I want to know how you, things are going to look in the years that are ahead. <coughs> and the Lord spoke to me and, and he said, now this is what you've been doing. And I'm going to let you lay some of that to the side. And I said, what is my primary role besides preaching? He said, it is absolutely vital for you to keep the church anchored to a holy past. Keep the church anchored to a holy past. Because the church movement today, are you guys with me here? I'm not going to tell this to the next service, so you're getting the bonus material. Um, um, like the men of Issachar, we need to understand that it's not enough to just understand a little bit about what's going on. We need to understand what we ought to do and how we should live. And um, I think about stones that are misunderstood. Back when I was a young teenager, uh, I'd listen on that old AM radio and a beautiful melody would come. And it would, these words, stones would play inside her head. And when she slept, they made her bed. She would ache for love and only get stones. Nobody knew what that song meant. Neil Diamond was the one that sang it. It was a beautiful melody with a, 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 a song that was mysterious. What are the stones? What do stones mean? We thought it had something to do with drugs. We, we were trying to interpret it as stoned instead of stones. And this is what Neil Diamond said years later about that song. 
He said, stones always speak to me of things that hurt, that cause pain. He said, as I've grown, I realize we long so much for family, for tenderness, but end up in pain so often because of stones. <coughs> if only we could put meaning to the stones. Well, without realizing it, Neil Diamond was tapping into a spiritual thing. There are stones, but stones ought to be a memorial of what God has done, not what hell has done to us. <coughs> so in Exodus 10, we want to look at where this whole thing began, and then we're going to walk through quickly. Um, I want to remind you, you say, well, aren't you kind of stretching it a little bit, our children? Well, first of all, when the day of Pentecost was announced, the prophecy that the Holy Spirit chose, it'll come to pass in the last days, I will pour out upon all flesh my spirit, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. No real move of God is a move of God devoid from our children. No real move of God is a move of God if we're not bringing generations along with us. <clears throat> uh, and Malachi's prophecy, Malachi said there's coming Messiah and one of the things that the work of Messiah will ultimately do is turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers. And, and more, more difficult perhaps from our perspective is turn the hearts of the, of the fathers back to their children. And, the, and how did it end? Lest I come and smite the world with a curse. Do you realize that the thing that will curse the world quicker and more devastatingly than anything else is if parents fail to lead their children and children fail to connect with their parents? This is what Pharaoh said during one of his negotiations with Moses. Return, well, the Lord said to Moses, return to Pharaoh and make your demands again. Now, you remember the 10 plagues? It's going over and over and over and over, back and forth, back and forth. I have made him and his officials stubborn so I can display my miraculous signs among them. I've also done it so you can tell your children and grandchildren about how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and about the signs I displayed among them. And so you will know that I am the Lord your God. Everything God does for us. That's why a church, listen to me folks. That's why a church has got to be careful that we don't do, view children's ministries as babysitting. That's why we want from nursery through youth we want them to be a part of the journey because a church is doomed for failure if they take their young ones and say, let's get them babysat. They're on the journey with us, okay? So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to submit to me? Let my people go so they can worship me. If you will refuse, watch out. For tomorrow I will bring a swarm of locusts on your country. They'll cover the land so that you won't be able to see the ground. This is just one of the ten plagues. They will devour what's little left of your crops after the hailstorm, including all the trees growing in the fields. They will overrun your palaces and the homes of your officials and all the houses in Egypt. Never in the history of Egypt have your ancestors seen a plague like this one. And with that, Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials now came to Pharaoh and appealed to him, how long will you let this man hold us hostage? See, this has been going on. The plague is announced. Pharaoh says no. The plague devastates part of uh, Egypt. And Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let you go. And then when the dust settles, no, I'm not letting you go. How long will you let this man hold us hostage? Let the men go to worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize that Egypt lies in ruins? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. All right, he told them, go and worship the Lord your God. But who exactly will be going with you? Moses replied, we will all go, young and old, our sons, our daughters, and our flocks and herds, 
we must all join together in celebrating a festival to the Lord. And Pharaoh retorted, the Lord will certainly need to be with you if I let you take your little ones. That is what is being taunted at us today. I can see through your evil plan, never, only the men may go and worship the Lord since that's what you requested. And Pharaoh threw them out of the palace. But the rest of the story is this, Moses and the leaders of Egypt made a decision that was high and lofty and noble thinking to be coming from slaves. They said, how is it possible that we could envision a future of worship and serving the Lord without our little ones? It cannot be. It must not be. Now the central truth, as I said, is God about to do, uh, is about to do an unbelievably powerful thing among our children. A new hedge will go up around the children in this land and God's great purposes shall be seen in them. His spirit shall fall upon them and they will become the generation that ultimately fulfills Revelation 12. Now let's look at a couple of things and then we'll wrap it up today. Number one, the plan of the enemy has been the destruction of children since the earliest days. This battle we fight called abortion, this, this brokenness in our land, the fatherless children, single parent homes, it's the result of a plan from the enemy that has been determined since the earliest days. In fact, it began in Genesis 3.15. <coughs> In Genesis 3.15, that's what theologians call the proto-evangelium. It's the, it's the first mention of the gospel. The woman will bring forth her seed, and of that child, that child, though you have bruised her heel and bruised the heel of mankind, that child's heel will crush your head. It was, a, it, was a, it was a declaration of battle. So we know that Satan has a hatred of the seed of the woman. We don't know all the ramifications of what went on in that early day in the Garden of Eden. But hear this one. God showed enough of his hand to know this. Your fall, your destruction, Satan, your annihilation, the complete eradication of your plan is going to come about through what these people will call our children. <laughs> now there are physical attempts, attempts to destroy our children. We read the scriptures and we see the sacrifice of the boy babies of Israel during Egyptian bondage. That wasn't just a crazy Pharaoh that decided that. That was something spawned in hell. We see all through the Old Testament the child sacrifice to Moloch. The, one of the core values, if you want to call it that, in the land of Canaan. And, and, and the reason, what we find out later is this is the reason that God brought judgment on them and told them they were going out of the land. See, the, 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 the dispensing of the ites in the land was because their chief sin was the sacrifice of their children. Of all that they did, they sacrifice their children and God says, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. They, this cannot be borne up anymore. I will drive them out. And Israel fought against it. And every time they let that world into their world and you had a king like Ahab or a queen like Jezebel, they always leaned into Baal. They always leaned into Moloch. They always leaned in because the enemy said, if I can just get the children wiped out, the purposes of God cannot be established. There was the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. There has been through history various seasons of infanticide where children that were unwanted or, or undesirable like an American politician said earlier, his, the flippant attitude of we'll kill them now or we can kill them later. And I don't know how much of that was sarcasm and stuff. I'm not trying to bring judgment on him. But the attitude, that was the attitude of Rome. The attitude said, if this is not a desirable child, this is, this, we have proof of this. Expose the child to the elements or drop him into the river in the dark of night. There's been inf infanticide 
all through the ages, and now we're fighting this thing of modern abortion. So there have always been physical attempts to destroy our children. There have also been non-physical attempts to destroy our children. Through Ahab and Jezebel, there was spiritual desecration. There was some actual um, sacrificing of children through the house of Omri. But Jezebel understood that for every child we cannot destroy, we must destroy them in the fiber of their morality. Uh, and so they brought in the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove. Um, there was spiritual desecration. There's social desecration under Nebuchadnezzar. Think about Daniel when he was brought into the uh, household of Nebuchadnezzar. He was told to change his name, change his lifestyle, embrace new foods, embrace new gods, embrace a new social order. And one of the things God is going to do in the future days is he's going to raise up Daniels and Shadrachs and Meshachs and Abednegoes. He's going to raise up people that will say, we may not be able to hide from the culture, but neither will we be devoured by the culture. And the best thing we can do is raise our children to stand strong. You can't hide them from everything. We can't create a world uh, of, of insular protection for our children unless you want to move in the woods and never come out again. But we can teach them to be Daniels. We can teach them, and, and, and girls, teach them, teach them to be Daniels. We can teach them to go into society and not lose their heritage as children of God. Now, okay, that's the plan of the enemy. What's the next thing, Pastor? We have to contend for our children. This is not going to just happen. It's not going to just happen. Like Pharaoh, the enemy will make demands and try to negotiate with our children. Like Pharaoh, he will try to say, well, this isn't that bad, and you don't want them to be oddities, so just allow this in their life. It's not that bad. The enemy is constantly trying to negotiate with us, and I've, I've got to be careful the way I say this because I know there are glorious and wonderful exceptions to the rule that I'm about to state. But we need to be careful before we push our children into the world of Hollywood. We need to be careful before we think that we're going to help our children make it and be healthy and wealthy and famous by pushing them right into Babylon. I know there are Christians in Hollywood and I know there are Christian uh, entertainers. I know that. I'm sure of that. And I'm not trying to, to say that anybody that wants to go that route is is deceived or is, or is compromising. But I'm telling you this, I have seen it too often where it's not God leading a child down a certain path, it's parents wanting their child to, they wanna live vicariously through their children. And we need to learn as a generation of parents again, we need to learn to say, my child will not walk that way. My child will not participate in that. Loved ones, I'm going to go ahead and say this, and then I'll deny having said it. We need to teach our boys how to be gentlemen. We need to teach our girls how to dress as a Christian. And we need to understand that we're not part of this culture, and it's not a blessing to have a good balance. I forgot where I was. Let's just keep moving forward. Letter B on your outline. Loved ones, we have mastered the art of being willing to die for our children. We've mastered that art. I know what it's like for someone to pick up one of my children and to threaten my child. And I know that suddenly it made no difference to me if they had a gun, a howitzer, a nuclear weapon. Uh, I threatened them within an inch of their life and was fully prepared to do whatever I needed to do to die for my child. And that wasn't a moment of anger. That was, it was something already calculated. It was a decision made in about three seconds. You let my child go or I'm about to hurt you beyond repair. 
Okay, I understand that. But, no, and it wasn't in church. <laughs> it, was, it was on an absolute pagan. But anyway, uh, most of us don't have a problem being willing to die for our children. But somebody with great insight taught me one time that we need to be willing to live for our children. Guys, it's not a romantic notion to your wife, honey, I'm willing to die for you. It might become romantic if you also say, and I'm also willing to live for you. That's a hard thing for us. We're hunters and gatherers. We're, we're warriors. Men by nature are warriors. So we think our ultimate love is, is to die for someone. And, and, and it can be. The scripture says no greater love is anyone than this than they lay down their life for their friends. But in the marriage relationship, uh, the, from the woman's perspective, I want a man that will die for me. But I've got to have a man that will live for me. And our children need to be the same thing. Now, each child's need is unique. So the battle we wage for them has also got to be unique. That means that's what the scripture meant when it said train them up in the way that they should go. We are given individual treasures. We are given individual treasures. God's intent is to partner with us and partner with us grandparents in order to build godly generations. Exodus 3, 6, uh, I am the God of your father. This is what he said to Moses. Now, some translations say I'm the God of your fathers, but that's, that translation is based on a couple of thises and thats. But the translation itself says I'm the God of your father. We don't even know, most of us, the name of Abraham or of, or of Moses' father. Fact of the matter, his name was Amram. And God's mighty work, he's in Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame, the parents of Moses. But I'm here to tell you that when God began his mighty work in Moses, he said, you had a father that was a slave and almost nobody knows his name, but I was his God. He prayed. He and your mother made a decision about you when you were born. And I'm in the bush that won't be concerned, I'm, uh, consumed. I'm, I'm appearing to you in the wilderness and I'm about to do the greatest, great escape that has ever been engineered. And part of it is because your unnamed, unknown father said, my child will not be lost to this Egyptian system. My child will serve the Lord. Exodus 10, tell your children and grandchildren about how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and about the signs I displayed among them so you will know that I am the Lord. Exodus 12, when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. It's talking about Passover. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The story of Passover ought to be so meaningful that it elicits response. And he says, this is what you should teach your children. Deuteronomy 4.9, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children, to their grandchildren after them. Remember this day. I think it's a beautiful tradition in the American Indian culture, especially back in the 1800s and before now they have modern tools, but in the 1800s and before, one of the most prized possessions of every tribe of the Great Plains and other tribes in the, on the east, they did it in other ways. But the Great Plains Indians, they carried a special buffalo robe. Whenever they were under attack or whether they had to, if they had to leave, that was the first thing that was grabbed because on that buffalo robe were drawn pictures and, and pictographs, and it was the heritage of the family that was to be handed down to the children. Um, during the days of Sitting Bull, someone said it was different in those days, uh, or that, that was raised in the, in the days of Sitting Bull. He said, our, our parent, at night, our parents would tell us the stories over and over again, and we never got tired of the stories because other than the pictures, that's all we had. And so they made it their job to tell us over and over and over again. 
my kids kind of laugh at me, but I think they also love it every now and then, um, especially when we're traveling or something. I said, guys, let me tell you a story. And they've heard it two dozen times. They know it backwards and forwards. But I'm going to tell them the story again. Why? Because I want them to tell their children. And I want their children to tell their children. And, and I, know, I know there are times that it's like, oh, come on, can we please go play? You know, or can we please eat the shrimp? It's time for the shrimp. But I see, you know what I see? As they get older, they settle in and they wrap their arms around daddy's story. And I tell it again. I tell it again. A couple of times I've changed the detail just if they were listening. Oh, I thought it happened. I said, it did. I'm checking you. You know, I'm checking you. God has a destiny for our children. I want you to know God has a destiny for our children even when we don't believe it. Listen to what he said in Deuteronomy 1. He says, you... Uh, are not going into the land because you failed 10 times. You've not believed me. Joshua will go in. And this is what he says in verse 39. Moreover, your little ones who you said would become a prey and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good and evil. He says, these little ones, you said I couldn't take care of them. You said if we follow God, we'll lose our children. He said, I want you to know they will be the ones I give the land to because you didn't believe. Deuteronomy 440, keep his decrees so that it may go well with you and your children. Here's letter F, God has promised to fight for our children alongside of us. Now he talks about uh, remembering the law of God. Read this whole passage out of Deuteronomy 11 when you get a chance. I'm gonna go down to verse 23. <laughs> he says, now when you remember this, when you write it on the door frames, when you talk to your children about it, this is what will happen. Verse 23, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you because you remembered to teach them. Now in your notes, there are a couple of things that I wanted you to be aware of. There's a daily plan to start with. Guys, I'm not going to preach about this. You also should have in your bulletin a couple of prayer or a prayer card front and back. Is that right? And just in one side is uh, eight ways to pray for your children. And the other side is things I wish I'd remembered. Is that right? Okay. That's for you. Now, I know that we generally give a bulletin to a couple. So if you want another copy, I think they're at the information table. You can get some on your way out. But I wanted to just, I wanted to take like two minutes and give you a framework of how you can start praying for your children. Um, I, I pray for, for five things for my children every day. Every single day I pray these five things for my children. Um, number one, I pray for them to live in the favor of God. Number two, I pray for them to live under the covering of Jesus' blood. Number three, I pray that they will have the fullness of the Spirit and full faith. And I pray that angelic intervention will cover their lives. I pray these four things. I have four alarms on my clock. And whatever I'm doing, I stop and I pray this over my children. Just, just a couple of minutes. If I'm in a meeting or something or, or I can't pray, I'll hit snooze and it'll remind me in nine minutes uh, that I need to do it. Now there's a fifth thing. Uh, I give every child a day. Now, I pray for every child every day. I pray for my wife every day. I pray for, for the congregation every day. But Monday, when I pray for all of my children, I also have a time set aside when I pray for, for my oldest son and his family, the special needs of their life. The next day, when I pray for all of the family, I'll pray for my second son and his family, the special needs of their life. On Wednesday, the third day, I pray for my oldest daughter and her husband and the special needs of their life. The fourth day, um, I pray for my youngest daughter and the special needs of her life. Fifth day is a day devoted to my wife. I pray for the whole family and I pray for her. Sixth day, I pray for grandchildren. Uh, seventh day, I'm too tired from preaching to get into a special day, so I take Sunday off, except I say, God, just bless them. Now, I still, I still have those alarms going a different time on Sunday. Um, I, I, uh, 
that's a place to start. Uh, you also have in your notes, and I don't have time to go over them, um, uh, eight ways to, that I pray for my children, a life of wisdom, uh, a life under God's protection, his, his favor, a spirit-filled life, help them to understand the call of God on their life. I pray that they find the right mate. I pray for them to live a lifestyle that pleases God, and I pray that they will understand the nature of Father's love. I, I pray this at various times through the week. And then there's one more section in your notes. We're not going over it. Just something for you to think about. Eight things that after my children are grown and there's, there's never been a day in their lives, never one day in their lives that I have not prayed for them. Never one. Uh, but after a lifetime of praying for them, there are eight things that I would say I'd do better if I had it to do over again. Now, you say, Pastor, what, what do we do? Well, let me read you a story and we're done. This is from Billy Rose, a syndicated columnist of back in the middle of the 20th century. There was once a fellow who, with his dad, farmed a little piece of land. Several times a year they would load up the old ox-drawn cart with vegetables and go into the nearest city and sell their produce. Except for their name and the patch of ground, father and son had little in common. The old man believed in taking it easy, being slow and deliberate. The boy was usually in a hurry, the go-getter type. One morning, bright and early, they hitched up the ox to the loaded cart and started on the long journey. The son figured that if they walked faster, kept going day and night, they'd make the market by early the next morning, so this was his goal. He kept prodding the ox with a stick, urging the beast to get a move on. Take it easy, son, said the old man. It's enough for you and I to be together. You'll last longer. The son said, but if we get to market ahead of the others, we'll have a better chance of getting good prices, argued the son. No reply. Dad just pulled his hat down over his eyes and fell asleep on the seat. Itchy and irritated, the young man kept goading the ox to walk faster. His stubborn pace refused to change. Four hours and four miles down the road, they came to a little house. The father woke up, smiled, and said, Here's your uncle's place. Let's stop in and say hello. But we've lost hours already, complained the hotshot. Then a few more minutes won't matter, said the dad. My brother and I live so close, and, let, and yet we see each other so seldom. The boy fidgeted and fumed while the two men laughed and talked away almost an hour. On the move again, the man took his turn leading the ox. As they approached a fork in the road, the father led the ox to the right. The left is the shorter way, said the son. I know it, replied the old man, but this way is so much prettier. Have you no respect for time? The young man asked impatiently. Oh, I respect it very much, said the dad. That's why I like to use it to look at beauty and enjoy each moment to the fullest. Some of you, your pulse is rising right now. The winding path led through graceful meadows, wildflowers, along a rippling stream, all of which the young man missed as he churned within, preoccupied and boiling with anxiety. He didn't even notice how lovely the sunset was that day. Twilight found them in what looked like a huge colorful garden. The old man breathed in the aroma, listened to the bubbling brook, and pulled the ox to a halt. Let's sleep here, he sighed. This is the last trip I'm taking with you, snapped the son. You're more interested in watching sunsets and smelling flowers than in making money. Why, that's the nicest thing you've said in a long time, smiled the dad. A couple of minutes later, he was snoring as his boy glared back at the stars. The night dragged slowly. The sun was restless. Already they had lost a day, so before sunrise, the young man hurriedly shook his father awake. They hitched up and went on. About a mile down the road, they happened upon another farmer, a total stranger, trying to pull his cart out of a ditch. Let's give him a hand, whispered the old man. And lose more time, exploded the son. Relax, son, you might be in a ditch someday yourself. We need to help others in need. Don't forget that. The boy looked away in anger. It was almost 8 o'clock that morning by the time the other cart was back on the road. Suddenly a great flash split the sky. What sounded like thunder followed. 
Beyond the hills the sky grew dark. Looks like a big rain in the city, said the old man. If we had hurried, we'd almost be sold out by now, grumbled the son. Take it easy, son. You'll last longer and you'll enjoy life so much more, counseled the kind old gentleman. The young man drove on in anger at lost opportunity. It was late afternoon by the time they got to the hill overlooking the city. They stopped. They stared down at it for a long, long time. Neither of them said a word. Finally, the young man put his hand on the father's shoulder and said, I'm sorry. I see what you mean, Dad. They then turned the cart around and began to roll slowly away from what had once been the city of Hiroshima. I think that's a good lesson for us. And this is what we want to leave with. There are three lies that are struggling to dominate the minds of Christians when it comes to their children. Number one, they say, well, I made mistakes or my kids made mistakes and it's just too late. I want to tell you, it's never too late. It's never too late. My grandfather left his children, one of which was my mother, and he was disregarded by every family member that I had ever talked to about him. He showed up back at our home just, um, what, four years, I think it was, three, three years, I think, before his death, and God did a work of reconciliation in that family in those three years where everybody said it's too late. It's never too late, number one. Number two, we say, well, my child's unreachable. I, I did everything I knew to do. I raised them in this church, but they're not serving the Lord. They've gone crazy. Nothing I do works. They're unreachable. May I remind you of the story of Manasseh? Manasseh, it was said, did more to hurt Israel and lead them into sin, did more than all the kings that were before him. Manasseh was a murderer. Manasseh was, a, was a privy, or not privy, but a party to child sacrifice. Manasseh was the worst of the worst. But when it came time for final judgment to be executed by God, Manasseh turned ever so slightly and and, and showed remorse. And Elijah's response was, okay, end him, kill him. But God said, have you noticed the way he turned? And it wasn't a, it was more of a, and do you know what the Bible says? Manasseh, the most evil king to, in Israel to that point, spent his last days doing everything in his power to turn Israel back to God. They didn't. Uh, it could be that his wickedness was just too loud and pronounced for them to listen. But I'm saying that Manasseh will be in heaven and he is one of the last ones in the Old Testament that I would have thought would have been there. No child is unreachable. And you say, yeah, but if if I go back, it's just going to cost too much. Loved ones, is your retirement really worth more than doing what needs to be done to bring your child home? Is, is your frustration with your child really so much that you're willing to lay aside unconditional love and, and create a path back home that they can never measure up to? Loved ones, I'm not trying to be hurtful in any way but we may just need to decide again, how important are our children really? Well, I gave them the best 18 years of their life and they blew it. Yeah, just like we did. You say, oh no, I didn't wait. I, I was responsible. I didn't waste the years of my life. Guys, we were all sinners. All we like sheep. Some of us came to Jesus from the guttermost, and some of us came to Jesus from the uttermost. You know, some of us were just crumbs, others, others of us were the crust, but we're all sinners in need of redemption. You say, well, Pastor, what do you, what do you want from me? I, I don't want anything from you. But I tell you what I want for you. I want for you. 
I want you to make a decision today that you will not allow this culture to set the stage for how you will father your children and how you will relate to your grandchildren. I, I tell you something else I want for you. If your selfishness, well, I've raised them, I deserve better. I ought not to be treated this way. I understand. But what if Jesus only reached out for the ones that had not mistreated him? You get where I'm going. You say, oh, it's just going to cost so much. Yeah, it will. It will. Your child may not even understand what you're doing, but they will see one day that you're saving them from utter destruction as this young man saw as they approached Hiroshima. It's not easy. Parenting's not for sissies. Tell you what I'm finding out, grandparenting's not for sissies. <laughs> not because they're trouble, but because I get exhausted. I did, I did stuff 30 years ago I can't do anymore. So I pass them off to mama. I understand, like the men of Issachar, I understand what this society is trying to do. Like the men of Issachar, I understand what the enemy is trying to do. But like Issachar, I know what needs to be done. I know what needs to be done. And I will not sacrifice my children or my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren at an altar of convenience or an altar of offense. I will not let unthoughtfulness cause me to clam up. But I have been given children not only to die for, but to live for. Do you know that in the culture of Israel, the greatest way a man could die, even if he died on the battlefield, he would be brought home. And the greatest, the, the thing every man longed for in Israel, every parent longed for in Israel, was when they died, the greatest thing that they longed for was to have their children present to close their eyes. That sounds kind of morbid to us. But it was their way of saying, no greater gift do I have than my children. I was there when they began their life. Now they're here when I end mine. And the greatest sign of respect was to be able to close the eyes of your parents and celebrate their life. <sighs> yeah, it's something we got to get a grip on. In an age that, and, and, and guys, I want to tell you this about abortion. It, it used to be a veiled fight. Then it was about the health of the mother. And now it's about, this is my choice. And it's even progressed beyond that to people teaching us, especially celebrities, you need to celebrate. Heard a lady say the other day, I'm glad to be in this town. This is where I had the best abortion I've ever had. Loved ones, don't be so foolish as to think this is a layered political decision. This is a moral thing. And it's an attempt to change the very foundation of our belief about children. And I'll tell you something else. If this thing doesn't end, if the church doesn't win this battle, I'll tell you something else we'll be fighting within 20 years. We'll be fighting euthanasia when a person's too old to take care of. And we'll be fighting the same thing they fought in Nazi Germany and came to dangerously close here in America back in the 20s and 30s. And that is helping those along that are mentally deficient or physically handicapped. They're just extra weight, extra baggage. You say, Pastor, this holiday weekend, you're supposed to make us happy. I can't, not, not with what's going on now. So where do we begin? Do we blow up abortion clinics? No. Do we kill abortionists? Oh, of course not. Paul told Timothy, he says, and be loving to those 
who are blind because you were once blind too. How do we turn the culture for our children and our old people and our disabled people? How do we turn the culture, deal with those that don't want to be part of the culture? No, we begin by loving our own children and our own grandchildren, our own elderly and our own disabled. It's gotta be something that shifts right here And when this shifts, the climate can begin to shift.